<laughs> yep. That's the problem with small fields. I mean, and all fields are small if you get close enough to whatever expertise is. I guess Becky's got a book deal. Becky has a book deal, sort of. Oh, really? That's great. Can you? Yeah. Um, it, it's going to be very popular. Yeah. It's about this uh, Texas. Um, it's it's the guy who created the largest statue of an American hero on I-45. The guy who made Is the... Is like, Nathan Bedford Forrest? No, it is not Nathan Bedford, but it's close. It's there's this guy. He's like ninety five or ninety six. I can't think of his name right. I think da- no, Dave Addicts. Dave Addicts is his name, and he has um, probably his most most famous statue is of Sam Houston right outside of Huntsville, where Becky works, like Sam Houston State. This like seventy five foot tall statue of Sam Houston. That supposedly, according to the uh, Visitor Center documentary, can withstand 700 mile per hour winds. Um, but also, what he's known for, he has done these gigantic busts now, of now all the talking. presidents. I mean, they're like, yeah, they're like they're twice, like they're double life size. Like I've, he, and he's done one of every, every president. American president, every president. Um, and he bought, I guess he bought this section of interstate uh, as you go in, as like where I ten and I forty five meet, as you kind of go into as you go into Houston, and it's called uh, what is it called Mount? It's called Mount Rush Hour, and it has like <laughs> it's he put the George Washington head, and the George Washington bust, the oh Thomas Jefferson, I don't want to say Abe Lincoln, and I'm thinking there's one more. Is there one more? Teddy Roosevelt. I, uh, not Teddy. No, Miller it's not. It, it's not. It's not congruent. It's not one to one of Mount Rushmore. But, but she's actually doing a book. She's doing the photo essay portion of the book. Um, That's great. Of this guy. Well, I think it's time he, that addicts got some attention and recognition in Texas. And he actually, <laughs> well, and actually, he know like uh, Tennessee Root. He did the uh, the Pat Head Summit statue that is at Thompson at a. Uh, I guess they have it right outside Thompson Bowling Arena where the Lady Vols play. Like he oh, did wow. the, yeah. If we're not recording, I would like to say that's a, a really hideous statue. It reminds me of the famously bad statue of Lucille Ball. It well, did. if we're not recording, we are, are recording. We, not recording? <laughs> we are recording. I hope so because okay. I'm ready to go. I would, <laughs> I would like to redact everything I said and everything I'm about to say. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done talking. About- Becky got a book deal. Is it's it as good. bad as the uh, Cristiano Ronaldo statue? <laughs> I still can't figure out the Nathan Bedford Forrest statue. I mean, it's awful on many levels. But is it supposed to be that aesthetically awful? Like, is it a joke or is it just bad? 
That's what you always say about uh, Dave Matthews. <laughs> no, that's what I believe about Dave Matthews. I really don't. That's another thing I don't understand. Like, maybe you can explain it to me. Like, how is Dave Matthews not a joke? I don't. Like, I really don't. And I'm confused and I'm willing to be wrong about it. But, like, he's joking, right? Well, here's the thing. I'll make the argument, yeah. but I won't say that it's, um, that it's right or that it's aesthetically good or anything. Right. But I think that the sort of vocal strangeness that you're talking about uh-huh. is no stranger than singing scat or <laughs> Does he do like that a too? lot of other people's. <laughs> no, I'm just saying a lot of other people do very sort of unusual things with their voice. Uh-huh. And I think that for a lot of people, Dave Matthews, it just really doesn't work. Uh-huh. But it's no stranger than what other people have sort of uh, pulled well, off before. What would you say? Hello? What do you say about that? Did I just crash? No, I think you're fine. No, I can hear you, but you're frozen. (laughs) In time. (laughs) Chad, you look like a union organizer today. Oh, there he's gone. They got him. (laughs) He does look like a union organizer. He's completely gone. (laughs) Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, he paints houses. I mean, I... I don't know. I mean, there's like singers with weird voices that I like. I mean, I you know, I, I listen to lots of punk rock. Lots of people Hello. sing very strangely. It's just the Dave Matthews one sounds to me like he's joking. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Absolutely. I don't have a strong opinion about him one way or another. I think of him sort of as frat rock, and just kind of leave it at that. Yeah. Yes, I remember. But I, I haven't heard that much. You know, like an album. Or... Like all, all of this is based on the only song I know of his, which is "What Would You Say." That's the, that's the that's it. I don't know any other Dave Matthews fan songs. I assume that's the only song, and they just play it for like forty-five to fifty minutes. <laughs> Would be my guess. How closely did you follow the um, um, Iowa thing and the impeachment? Impeachment, stuff? not at all, because it, I know it was going to be really frustrating. You know, at first I was interested when they decided yeah. to not call witnesses. I was like, well, everyone, we all know what this is going to be, right? Um, the Iowa, like, really, really closely, because, uh, you know, I, I'm doing the texting for Bernie thing, um, which yeah. is, is great and uh, is really interesting. Um, so I've been kind of, like, following the organizing stuff that's going on, because, you know, you're texting people like hey can you come to this meeting will you volunteer for this event will you do that stuff so i was watching it and um you know i i have <laughs> i have strong opinions on it but it was yeah it was interesting to watch uh i think the biggest news really is getting maybe not getting lost in or maybe getting lost is like i think biden's done i don't think he has any viable path now i mean well maybe although iowa doesn't mean much i mean nobody even knows what the fuck's going on there except that if you have a lot of free time and a big mouth you get a lot of um representation yeah but he had like i mean it's just um, there's no no one showed up for him but yeah he had a very like, low just no one showed up uh, and so well how's he polling though he's still poll you know he's gonna poll well because people know who he is right he's gonna poll well, I'm saying like how, like, uh, what's it going to look like well, in New Chad's Hampshire, voice? where you don't have to go out and spend five hours and find a babysitter and all that. Mm-hmm. You just well, he's pulling, you know, he's go not going to, he's, I don't even think he's going to get, he might get third in New Hampshire. 
Uh, he's okay. counting on South Carolina, After. but um, it's really interesting because for the text for Bernie, the new the new text we have for South Carolina is that um, some influential South Carolina politicians have flipped from Biden to Bernie, saying that we see him as being the viable candidate now. And so uh, Biden's whole thing is it? I mean, not uh, because right. I I would definitely rather have Bernie yeah. than Biden. But I'd much rather have a referendum on Warren or uh, yeah. Bernie because it seems like a better referendum. Oh, no, those are the two. You know, absolutely. Um, those are the two who should be candidates who should be talking about their ideas. Right. The rest is just. And I think that uh, Warren is getting phased out because she's not part of the the story of the drama. Well, she also, you know, I think is like technically not. I mean, she her campaign has faltered a lot, right? Like she has, you yeah. know, she tried to walk kind of a middle ground on Medicare for all after saying that she backed it and she like lost a lot of momentum there. And I think yeah. the whole thing about um, the Bernie Sanders meeting where he told her she couldn't be the president was like, it's like a, people kind of read it for what it was like cynical, probably like campaign people were like, yeah, you should do that. And it's, it came off badly for them, I think. Yeah. I mean, my understanding of it was, or the way I chose to understand it was that Bernie said, basically, um, I don't think a woman can be elected right now. Not, I don't think a woman is capable of holding the office of president. And maybe she understood it differently, or maybe he didn't say it um, in exactly those terms. But I believe that's what she heard. And I believe that it's not what he thought that yeah, he I mean said. that's entirely possible I mean that's that and, and that, that and that happens every yeah. day right that happens every day to all like you know yeah and it's kind of like okay but um and it got right. blown up by all the people who don't want either of them who want to damage both of their campaigns right but also I'm not up right. there and I don't and the only news that I get from up there is NPR uh-huh. what people link in my social yeah. media and um, then occasionally I'll peruse um, The Guardian or like a big newspaper that's free online. Usually the I have Guardian. to say that I've been like kind of astonished at how bad NPR's coverage has been. Like it's really kind of shocking to me when I listen to it. Yeah, I and again, it's like I listen to, but basically, I don't even listen to it in the mornings anymore. I um, uh, put on something funny to listen to, and then when I get to school, the homepage for the school computer is set yeah. to NPR, I mean, and I look and I scan and see which stories are there, and if they look interesting, I might click on. Yeah, them I don't know. If it's just I don't but, know if maybe I've changed the interview. Like NPR used to be kind of the only outlet for being reasonable that I could ever get on the radio, and now I listen to it, and it's like. Yeah kind of striking to me how like anti Sanders campaign they are it's like kind of like not even and I realize like I have a ton of biases in this but it's like oh that's very strange it seems like you're going out of your way to like take the story that way like in a weird way I agree um, yeah although also I think that um, um, you know they're Chad, they're vested Chad are you just yelling at the computer He's making. He's doing his fish imitation. Also, I think he's in yeah, outer space now. That's why no one can hear him scream. 
<laughs> He's taking his elementary school class photo. <laughs> oh, well. It's okay. It's 1140. We'll probably just have to do this some other time. But, yeah, I was watching the Iowa thing really closely, and um, and I've kind of deliberately, deliberately like, not been doing politics on Facebook for a long time because I find it exhausting. Um, but I'm going to start – I started putting stuff during the primaries because I see a lot of friends who are like, uh, go Mayor Pete uh, or something. And so I put up the video today of, like, the – I don't know if you saw it from The Intercept, like, the actual organizing that was going into getting um, Spanish-speaking – uh, laborers and the Somali community to caucus in Iowa. And it, it was really, it's really good. And it's really, it shows like, I think there's just a completely different organizational structure for the Sanders campaign. That it's, that's, that's really good. We already have 28 minutes of, of podcast so far <laughs> on my recording where I've stopped at multiple times. <laughs> so that was 45 minutes. Oh Lord, that's gonna be fun to edit. Are we fine? Yeah. So, how's um, everyone? Did everyone vote? Did everyone go out and vote? It'll work out the same if we, if you start or stop. Hello. Now. It's just a one big cut. <laughs> uh, it's just matching it up. Oh wait, Tom Perez is saying we should start over from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> we have. Three percent of the podcast left. <laughs> gotta start over. Yeah, we gotta start it over. So are we actually starting now? Yes. Welcome to this great podcast. Atticus Shrug. A podcast about trying to do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is the part where I sequence it up to. So with me, as always, are Chad. Howdy, y'all. And David Dykes. Hello. I'm Wes, Chief. Uh, I uh, am in Kyoto, where it snowed all day yesterday. I am uh, in Houston, Texas, where it was, I think, 60 on Monday. It was 80 on Tuesday. It was 50 on Wednesday. And it was 40 today. And it's supposed to be 70 tomorrow. Very nice. Welcome and to the future. I'm in San Miguel de Allende where it rained yesterday for the first time in months, and it probably won't rain again until June. Of 2022. Desert? Uh, we're desert. Well, we have a wet and a dry season, and it's the middle uh-huh. of the dry season, but we usually get a couple of days of rain in the winter, and yesterday was one of them. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, it's... Um, um, does, it, does anything weird so happen when it rains? It's just there? for a day or two. Oh, does the like rain mess up anything, or it's okay? It just it just washes down. all the dust off everything. Oh, I've heard Georgia stories about like playing in the rain runoff culverts or whatever. Yeah, well, when it does rain here, because there's not as much ground cover and stuff, it runs like rivers down the streets, and uh, uh, it's pretty insane. When I guess what in Asia they call the monsoon season season um uh here it's just rainy season but it really pours down here uh, what yeah, japan has the the spring rainy season where it rains all day every day mm. you guys need concrete sounds like you just <laughs> yeah. need to put we could learn from houston yeah 
do what Houston does. Anywhere where the water could possibly drain, just pour tons and tons of concrete. <laughs> I hear That's that works. Actually, well. kind of happening here, except they do it with cobblestone. But mm-hmm. uh, we—that's why we keep getting deeper and deeper rivers in our streets during rainy season. Because uphill, they're building condos and all different sorts of uh, major construction. But and Tennessee's oh, yeah. underwater today. I understand. That's what I heard. Uh, maybe it'll put out the fire. <laughs> yeah, I heard uh, in Pineville, Kentucky, they closed the floodgates for the first time ever. Is what my mom told me. Clo- they closed them or opened them? Closed them. So, from what I understand, and I think <laughs> these I've, are interesting floods. This is how they get the flood to come. No, it's like gates that prevent flood. It's like kind of like oh, so they let the water out. Yeah. it's going to flood back here. Like it's like a dam or something. It's like a dam. Yeah, that like protects. It's like a barricade of like this. Like the city is like barricaded. I think is what. Huh. It like protects the city a from flooding. Dam. Yeah, it protects the city. It's been a long time since I've been to Pineville, Kentucky. So that's the best John Prine album. <laughs> long time, <laughs> long time gone. Um, it's been a long time since I've been to Pineville, Kentucky. Kentucky. So uh, since we're late starting, uh, we're gonna. It's today is the end of our trilogy on on Dolly Parton's America, right? Yeah. Yes. Rest. So I finally, I finally finished listening to it. I did all of my homework. I read the article. I listened to it and I, I took notes and I thought I didn't take very many notes. Now I'm looking and I have like this, I have like a day's worth of notes. Um, uh, like a true boring academic, I did that. Uh, so, well, why don't we just start talking? There's a lot of stuff in the news this week, but we'll, we'll skip through that and get to it next time. Uh, Matt Gates is still a moron. There's a lot of strange things happening in the Mississippi prison system. Uh, oh, David, you were saying Lamar Alexander is a, a, a jerk as well. An officer. Yeah, just a, just a craven. What did he do? Was he impeachment this week? Yeah, he was somebody who, he's retiring. He had nothing to lose. Right. And he basically right. came out and said, well, I, I don't want to hear any more witnesses because I already know that he's guilty and I'm going to vote to acquit him anyway. Yeah. I mean... I don't even know like how much like how much there is to talk about with the impeachment because it's again everybody knows the setup right it, like it if you are a Republican in America it doesn't matter right it doesn't matter like you're gonna uh, stick 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 together and that's it and everyone knows it's criminal but like nobody cares so I don't even know like I haven't even invested much time in it. Well, what pisses me off about the Lamar Alexander thing is that somehow I don't know how. He has a reputation for some degree of integrity, which he partly inherited from his mentor, who was Howard Baker, who was another guy who uh, sort of stumbled backwards into being some sort of Watergate hero. But uh, because he's the one who said, what did the president know and when did he know it? But people tend to forget that that was in the context of trying to defend Nixon, not trying to bring him down. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people who have these reputations for integrity um, come into them undeservedly. Yeah. It usually just means they're like they're um, very, very milquetoast status quo and appeal to the power structure in general. Yeah. Um, all right, so with the Dolly Parton thing, so these are the last two or three episodes I think we made it up to. And 
This, the ones that we kind of cut off at, they begin with the, the class, the Dolly Parton's America class at UT, uh, where both of you went and David used to teach. Um, and I'm going to say something insulting to the students at first. Like, uh, I was kind of at first like, oh, no, I'm, I'm glad that this year I don't have to talk to lots of undergraduates because it was a very undergraduate conversation. And I realize that's really bad thing of me to say. <laughs> it struck me that way for a second. But then they said some interesting things after that. Uh, it just reminded me of being in, in a classroom with freshmen. Um, but a lot of them had this conversation about uh, how they felt like this pressure to be less Southern and stuff. Um, and this stuff they were talking about, it doesn't really impact me at all because I think Florida's a lot different than Tennessee. Uh, I don't think I ever felt any pressure to be Southern or not be Southern, like it's not really a thing and I don't have a particular strong accent or anything. But so I was gonna ask you guys, did, did what they were talking about like resonate with you at all? Yeah, I think it did. Like when I went, I went to the, uh, the real UT, as we say down here in Houston, um, uh, there were like, so when I, I went, you know, there were a lot of kids from Nashville and like the Nashville mm -hmm. kids were like, Oh, like you guys are from the country. Like you, uh, like we're not from the country. We're not really from the, like you guys need to act, uh, like you have accents and you have, uh, your, your backward ways or whatever, you know, um, Why'd they go to UT then? Yeah, I don't know. Because they couldn't get into Vanderbilt, I guess that's oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was yeah. going to say um, that, Wes, it's easy for you not to have any sort of thing about the southernness because nobody ever mm. makes fun of Florida men. But yeah. um, uh, <laughs> it's true. Uh, I, my, my cocaine is not hidden inside the uh, party barge. Or, the, or inside of an uh, alligator. Not yeah. inside the alligator. Um, but also, I'll say, uh, Chad and I both, like, I knew Chad when he was knee-high to a grasshopper. And yeah. uh, you had a lot more accent into your 20s. Yeah. And it's partly well, because you've lived away from Tennessee, but I think that we intentionally uh, change our accent, not in some yeah. sort of sitting down and studying it sort of way, but just in order to be taken seriously in different contexts, we strip it away. And then when we put it back on, we've talked about this before, that then when we put it back on, it feels sort of fake to us. It's a strange thing yeah. and you end up sort of not having a genuine accent, just having um, one that you put on according to <laughs> Remember, circumstances. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it, I do have, like, there's a, a kind of a, a story I remember, um, this incident that happened and i yeah i would i hung out there were people from like charleston south carolina there were people from knoxville people from nashville uh people from memphis that i would hang out with and yeah i think i did change my accent and i remember there was uh like once it was like a friday at school and i went to the library and i met somebody in the library and they're like oh my god like where are you from like your accent's so crazy like you're at, like, where are you from? And they're like, I'm from Taswell. I'm from like an hour and a half up the road. And they're like, oh wow, like I've grown up in Farragut, and I never heard anybody with a crazy accent like that. <laughs> and like, you know, like Farragut is in like Knoxville. Like it's it's right there in Knoxville. And yeah. then I remember, I I drove to Taswell, 
and I stopped and got some gas and I like I went in and I was like, Oh, twenty dollars on pump three and they're like, Oh my god, where are you from? Like, you ain't from around here <laughs> And I'm like, I, I I grew up here. I don't know. I grew up here. I don't know. Like, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm talking. I don't mean to be talking so proper. I just asked for $20 on pump 12. Pardon uh, me, madam. Yeah. I said, excuse me. Excuse I was, me. Could I trouble you for some gasoline? Yeah. Could I trouble petrol. you for some petrol? Yeah. Can I trouble you <laughs> yeah, for, sorry. I would like 10 liters, 10 liters of the, your finest petrol on... Uh, <laughs> For my aluminium carriage. <laughs> Excuse me. And uh, if you could do it toot sweet, if you will. And then your monocle fell out. <laughs> and I was actually drinking a cup of tea, too. It was weird. I didn't even have cup holders in my car at the time. And I was drinking a cup of tea for some reason. Mountain Dew tea. <laughs> it was hot Mountain Dew. It was hot Mountain Dew that I but it's funny, I mean, that like that whole thing is like really prominent in any literature of like colonization, right? About like code switching and stuff. And so like it's kind of goes into what like comes out later in this episode about like if you think about different areas of the country as being colonized, right? Like that makes sense. And it's kind of like a typical almost like an immigrant story, right? Like where the generation before doesn't speak speaks only their mother tongue and then the second generation speaks both and is able to move back and forth and then the third is completely converted to the new the new language right and then the and fourth know, resents uh, the fact that they didn't right, get right. the other language right absolutely um well i know like yeah chad's sister Terrace talked a lot about her experience with that like right like yeah. moving between the professional world and like personal world and like I, it's probably happened to you too chad but like getting a lot of grief for not speaking like they used to or like their, their grandma does yeah getting i mean it is raisin. yeah getting yeah. above my raisin and then going to a job it's like damn you speak so country and yeah which is actually <laughs> my students like sort of my students at my school well i'll every once in a while i will i will reveal over the year i kind of reveal more and more about my background so by the end of the year they know my full biography uh <laughs> But they're like, oh, you don't sound like you don't sound like you're from the country at all. Like, but then I'll say something like, I don't know what I can. But, um, like, you won't say that to my face. You won't say that yeah. to the daddy rabbit. Say, <laughs> yeah. like, Yuns, Yuns, better sit down and take this test. <laughs> Yuns, are, I'm about to break a switch off. I'm about to go outside and break off a switch. And then they'll say, damn, Mr. Watson, you country. You sound country. <laughs> um, this is uh, a, a bit off the topic, but, you know, uh, at Musashi's elementary school in New Orleans, where most of the kids are African-American, like, if he spoke, like, Japanese in front of them, they, uh, like, all the kids would be like, I didn't know you were Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, where it's kind of like, you know, the... the I think in a lot of uh, southern urban areas, like the default, the default foreign <laughs> identity is um, Spanish. Right? Uh, well, and uh, um, well, like uh, Becky's grandfather, who was uh, a pretty cool dude, would all like if um, if like his, if Becky's grandmother made uh, like spaghetti, he would always complain because it was a little too south of the border for him. <laughs> 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 uh, 
So, <laughs> that's here, because, I guess so that's because she always dropped it in his lap. <laughs> 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 Threw it. <laughs> Ooh, a spaghetti. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Well, but then I guess that's the uh, the next question, right? Is like, so do you, is that does that mean that the accent that you grew up with is going away? Like, is that something that's disappearing? Hmm. Not from anybody else I know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, like, oh, hanging like your sister. Yeah, like hanging out I with mean, my stepsister and like my her husband. Yeah, they're gonna keep that, and their daughter definitely has that accent and. Right. And listening to my brother's kid, all my brother's kids all have, they have more of a country accent than maybe I ever had because uh, they live way my out of the country. My nephew's here in uh, uh, Mexico right now, and he stayed with me all last year. And it's interesting watching him. Um, his accent usually gets a little stronger when he gets here mm-hmm. uh, as a sort of defiance to the people around him who keep pointing it out. Um, and I think over time it'll probably soften some, but, uh, you know, there's a kind of defiant way of, uh, of using your accent to, uh, to sort mm-hmm. of dare somebody to judge you for it. Yeah. I noticed with, 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 uh, your nephew, uh, his, you can also tell too, like he, um, and this, it's so funny the way we make up categories in America because country often completely excludes African-American people, uh, whereas, like, maybe the, I won't say the majority, but the African-American people I grew up with were very country, right? And so Michael has uh, definitely a kind of uh, African-American country accent, I think. Yeah, that's right? true. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, having grown up, grown up in an area where there were lots and lots of African-American country people, yes, I would say, yeah. Yeah. Which is an interesting variation, too. But, I mean, I, I think also listening to the kids in the Dolly Parton thing talk, it made me kind of sad that they felt like they uh, were pressured to give up uh, their accent, right? Especially now when we're seeing, especially amongst, like, the younger leftist circles, uh, saying things like y'all and stuff has been become the cool thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of thought about that, and I was thinking, like, I never... Maybe I never thought about it. Maybe I never thought about it when I was like their age. But I think there probably was that pressure, and I was like, you know, I think about that incident at the at the at the library, where you know I was made to feel like a hillbilly, and then I went home and I was made to feel like a, you know, aristocrat. And I never really thought about it, but you know, I don't know if I was con- that conscious of it at the time. But I think there was like this pressure so then i mean and it makes me uh, it makes me pretty sad to think about how i would have felt if i'd actually been conscious of that at the time <laughs> right well i also don't want to um pile on to undergraduates um um but i think that that's where the conversation went and everybody wanted to yeah. be part of the conversation uh and that's there was exactly a, a little I, bit yeah. of like trying things on like describing Dolly Parton as an extraction capitalist and sort of ending <laughs> it with that as if that's all yeah. you need to know about. Right. Um, you know, it's like that to me didn't uh, didn't play especially well for one thing. And for another thing, it just seemed like somebody sort of trying out some jargon. 
Yeah, and I want to be as like forgiving as possible of them because I think an undergraduate classroom is a great place for that, right? That's well, yeah, what yeah, it's yeah. for. And, and but then when you record it and put it down, it's to me and 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 I'm sure to you as well. Like we've all heard that type of conversation, you know, a hundred, two hundred, three hundred times, right? And yeah. so it, it's like I don't want to be dismissive of, of the the students in it, but it's also like okay, this is what it sounds like when you're kind of putting these words out of your mouth for the first time, right? Like, I'm, I'm going to say extraction capitalist, right? And it's yeah. not that you're wrong, it's just that that, you know, it, it's um, by its nature a shallow analysis because you're kind of trying out these ideas, right? So is it bad? Uh, is it is that on Chad Boomerad for, like, putting that out? It's like, oh, this is very interesting. I'll record this and I'll put it out well, to the world. I mean, I, I find some... His editorial choices odd sometimes, but I don't know him personally. But to me, it's like uh, some of the things that he finds interesting, I find completely not interesting. So I don't know. Well, if you but think about show. in the entire podcast, like think about what um, the diehard, serious country music fans had to say about her and what mm -hmm. the working class and really poor people on the show had to say about her. And mm -hmm. you'll find that there wasn't a single person who didn't say well i'm not really into country music but i love dolly and there wasn't a single person who was poor and it's uh -huh. like you know that's to a large degree who her music's for it seems like a huge omission to me uh, uh -huh. and i don't know if i said this last time or not but it seems odd to me that they never use the word camp or campy uh -huh. yeah because yeah, i think you're saying that but you can, you can say it again I mean, it's because she's completely campy. She knows what a drag queen she is. And yet, you can't talk seriously about the issue in a, in a sort of uh, analytical way if you admit that it's all sort of a burlesque at the same time that it's the thing that it is, uh, that, right. it's, that it's campy. And um, I think that the whole show was very much a sort of intellectual um, uh, upper middle class and higher academic exercise. And I thought it, I really loved it. And I loved uh, hearing what she had to say. I thought that was a good foil for her in some ways. Uh -huh. um, but also I think it could have maybe reached some deeper depths of dealing with something more than just Dolly Parton, but her real America, like most of her fans are not college students and people going to Madison Square Garden. Right, right. And those yeah. are the people that we heard from. Right. Yeah, I think I think so. And I think that that's, that's, the, tar that's the target audience for this type, that type of medium, right? Yeah. Largely. Yeah. It seems like, right? Um, that's who we're trying so to just, get. Um, people yeah, from the real UT. People from the real UT. Temple. Extraction capitalists. <laughs> and extraction right. capital, yes, please. Extract us. Uh, just asking for a friend is, is uh, fishing extraction capitalism. <laughs> you mean with a PH? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, so... They also, they talked about the origin of the word hillbilly, and hillbilly to me has no, um, also in my life, it's not something that's ever said towards me or about me or anyone. Uh, so does that, like, word still have any resonance at all? Like, I don't know. I think but maybe you if ago. you're poor enough, it mm -hmm. does. 
You know, it's it's like um, as last time we mentioned um, everything in its path, mm-hmm. and that book does a good job of analyzing a lot of things about Appalachian personalities and cultures. And there's a kind of scrappiness and chip on the shoulder uh, to a yeah. lot of people, and a inferiority complex at the same time. Yeah. And uh, being called a hillbilly sets some people off. It never did me right. because I wasn't, you know, rural or poor enough for it to, um, uh, you know, for it to have any teeth. But I think, yeah, right. I think there's still people who, and I have to say, I remember once, it might have been back in the Clinton years, there was a thing about the National Endowment for the Arts or National Endowment for mm-hmm. the Humanities, and it was one of those budget battles, and the head of the uh, department uh, was defending himself against charges that maybe he shouldn't be spending all of the available funds on opera and classical music. Uh-huh. And he said, well, what am I supposed to do? Spend it on hillbilly music? This is the basis of Western civilization. And it uh, it pissed me off really bad, so much that I remember it 30 years later. Um, right. Uh, just because of the classism of it rather than the specifics of the fact that it's regional. Um, uh-huh. My argument in that case was always, uh, rich people already pay for opera and classical music, I think. Um, right. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah. The, um, it, it's not that it doesn't... I don't think it's toothless, and I think the closer you are to some sort of stereotype, uh, mm-hmm. the harder it is to deal with that stereotype. Yeah. Yeah, I know, Agreed. like, so people from where I am in Florida are either, like, crackers or fish heads. And, like, the fish head one always seems funny to me, but it seemed to have some resonance with, like, my grandmother's generation or maybe even my dad's to where it kind of bothered them. Or not bothered, but it was kind of like hillbilly, like, where it bothered them, but then they would also kind of revel in it. Yeah. Like, my grandmother made a sign for her yard that said Fishhead Riviera. Um, <laughs> and when she was painting it, she painted it wrong and left out an eye, so it said Fishhead Rivera. <laughs> <laughs> they thought that was uh, who lived there. Yeah, yeah. Fishhead Rivera lives up there. Uh, yeah, entirely likely. Um, but it was like, but that was more like an intralocal thing. Like if you're from Destin, you're a fishhead, because you, everyone from Destin got bussed over to school in Fort Walton, and so they would be the fishheads. And then Cracker is just one of those weird things that's used differently now, but was just kind of a, a Florida pioneer, right? It was a Cracker. Yeah, I think of Georgia and Florida as the Cracker states. Mm-hmm. That Fort Walton or Mary Esther near where I'm from, used to be called Cracker Neck. <laughs> uh, and they, cha- they changed all the good names. Uh, Cracker Neck was across the bay from Boggy. And they, they changed to Mary Esther in Niceville. <laughs> Boggy became Niceville? <laughs> yeah. Like, intentionally. Intentionally. They were like, we can't, we can't continue being named Boggy. How <laughs> are we going nice. to sell our beaches to How, uh, Republicans? Yeah. Well, they don't have any beaches, but yeah, but uh, oh, okay. like what are there? It's very boggy over there. <laughs> it's an accurate description. Um, and, and so they had an actual like meetings, like, well, well Niceville sounds good. Yeah, it'd be nice. It'd be nice. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, when I was growing up, there used to be a, a big hill, like, well, as much as we have a hillside in Florida, where it said City of Niceville in 
lights and people would always go take out the bulbs so it said City of Evil. That was always... <laughs> <laughs> so they changed it to all being plant so that you can't do that anymore. So I think we, right. sh yeah. we should be yep. sure that we get to the uh, Dixie Stampede. Yeah, I know. There's so many like notes I have before that to lead into it. Maybe there's too much to talk about. Um, yeah, so they kind of go through this thing that I would talk about for a long time, but we maybe we can move on to it, Dixie Stampede. But about like how uh, the kind of changing view of Appalachia and how kind of there's a development logic to it as treating it like a like a colonized nation, right? And yeah. it was interesting to me they brought up about how a lot of this was through liberal arts colleges moving in and wanting to get funding, so they had to depict it like a, a rundown area. Um, and then the question gets asked, if the land is so rich, why are the people so poor? Which uh, I think that people should ask themselves about lots of places in the world. Mm. You know, it's kind of a fundamental quality of, of lots of places that people live. And it's one of the things that makes me nuts when you see people who are supposed to be your left-wing allies say that uh, we should just get rid of the South or we should look at all these mm. red states, right, uh, where, you know, the majority of African-American people in the country live or, or, or a majority of people who are below the poverty line live and they don't realize that what they're looking at is the area they consider civilized is profiting off of the complete uh, extraction industries and, and other places like fishing. Um, anyway, that's me. Uh, so, so yeah, so we get to this, this thing that happens with the Dixie Stampede, which I was not familiar with at all. I mean, I was familiar with the controversy. I never, I've never been to the Dixie Stampede. Have either of you been to the Dixie Stampede? I saw no. the signs all the time when I was a younger person, okay. but I never went. I mean, I never went to any of those tourist traps in, uh, well, I went to Dollywood and Silver Dollar City back before it was Dollywood, but um, the other stuff, no. And Dollywood, yeah. Uh, I, a couple of times I, I've been there. I've driven by it. Driven by it a lot. Well, I've ridden by it a lot. I haven't been to Silver Dollar. I mean, I haven't been to... I've been to Silver Dollar City um, and to Dollywood, but I haven't been to Dixie Stampede. Yeah, it's one of those things I don't think I would have ever been to, and not because, like, some... I mean, I would also object to it being uh, glorifying the, the South and the Civil War, but I would also, like, find it not interesting in the least in, in many other ways. Like, it just doesn't seem like something I would do. But... Um, yeah, I, I didn't realize like it, I didn't realize like what a big deal it is like this that is very profitable and like very yeah. well visited. But I guess it's one of those things that like if you're going to Pigeon Forge, right, that's that's one of the things you're looking for, right? It's your go-to dinner destination in Pigeon Forge. Uh, it's the medieval it's, times of the South. I have been to a medieval times yeah. once a long time. Ago. It is kind. Of, that's always that's always what I heard it kind of marketed as it was like it's a it's a like a it's a medieval times but for our people and... <laughs> well they should also uh close down medieval times because um feudalism was highly problematic yeah tell me about well, i think <laughs> i think for me um the thing that kind of my takeaway about the dixie stampede i think it was the right thing to drop it out of the name it's probably the right thing to just completely try to disassociate it from uh, the Civil War. But also, uh, I think that for a lot of us a generation ago, uh -huh. the Civil War seemed incredibly remote and irrelevant. And yeah. it was kitschy and it was campy and it was not taken seriously. 
because um, certainly I grew up knowing that it was about slavery, uh, although I heard the other narrative because I am from the South. And I grew up, uh, but I remember the first time I asked my dad about it, I was a little bitty kid, and they were playing the night they drove old Dixie down, and I asked him (laughs) what it was about, and he said it was about a war that should have been forgotten a long time ago. And I think that that the Dixie Sampede was not meant to be taken even a little bit seriously on any level when it was... um, when it was put together and with the rise of sort of neo-confederacy and um, uh, sort of the inevitable bringing back up of the Civil War as a serious topic as we try to move further and further along the road towards racial reconciliation, we have to go back to the original sin and all. I think that I understand why it's not, why it is important, but I don't think it was ever intended to be a neo-confederate or white um, uh, supremacist sort of spectacle. I think it was intended to be just some dumb medieval times thing where um, just the fact that they randomly choose one side to be the north and one to be the south, or probably they uh, geographically choose it uh, by um, uh, just whichever one's on the north side of the building or the south side of the building. But... um, yeah, like I say, I see how it's problematic, but I understand how, given the times, it was uh, not intended to be problematic in the way that it was. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's kind of how those things worked, right? Like, me too. Like, if I, up until a certain point of my life, I wouldn't even notice that stuff because kind of, um, you said campy before, but the Civil War, and this is not great, but when I was a kid, the Civil War is kind of a campy thing, right? Yeah. Like we had the North and South uh, miniseries on TV with Patrick mm-hmm. Swayze playing the you know heroic Confederate soldier, yeah. right? Um, Ori Main, Ori Main, uh, and you know you had all this stuff. You had you know uh, when I grew up, we visited tons of Civil War battle sites, which is a realer kind of thing. But then surrounding that would be all these kind of really kitschy kind of North versus South stuff that didn't seem like um, anything important to me. It seemed. Like, you know what I mean? It was just kind of like a, a tourist thing, uh, and, and I'm not I kind of grouped good. it in with um, hillbilly golf, the mini, the miniature golf course, <laughs> hillbilly golf. Right. Uh, right you right. know, I didn't think and, of that as insulting to Appalachian people, even though it had a guy with uh, high water pants and a hole with patches on them and a moonshine jug leaning up against the bottom of a tree uh, with uh, some sort of um, battered slouch hat on. Uh, as yeah. it's, um, you know, and a lot of um, jugs with I think, on the side. And... Yeah. I probably, I remember Hillbilly Golf, and I think probably, I was probably more offended by Hillbilly Golf than <laughs> Dixie Stampede. <laughs> and yeah, I do want to make clear, like, I'm not saying that that is a good thing, right? I think that's the way those things kind of work, is that it, it kind of moves into the background of everyday life, where it's like, oh, the Civil War was a thing uh, that happened, right? Um and you could, it, it's, the, it's the kind of way that it allows you to like visit a plantation and think about the architecture, right? Think about right. the trees. Um, you know, uh, it's, yeah, I think it is good that we question these things now. I'm just saying that's not a way that I would have thought of it as yeah. an elementary school student probably. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. Like younger, you're like, oh yeah, like the Civil War was a bad thing that we're all over. We all, like it's in the past and we all got over it. 
But then as we got old, it was like, oh, wait a minute. There are a lot of people that didn't get over it. And, um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Well, right. and it's like when you go to Nixon land and you ride the raging water gate. And, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. a fun log plume. But, uh, you know, and... there was a real water gate. It was a hotel, apparently. Uh, right. And you, and you go... And you, it's uh, like when you go to Johnstown, Pennsylvania and ride the log flume. <laughs> I was just going to talk about the Nixon land and the uh, the thing where you can shoot Daniel Shore with the water cannon. Like with the... <laughs> Nixon, Nixon land is a great Go- thing. Google, Google it, fellas. <laughs> and ladies. And folks. But, you know, so in listening to the podcast, right, um, it's this interesting thing because they get sidetracked, I guess. Well, they talk to these people who are like the uh, daughters of the American Revolution or the people who are like, um, don't take away our Don't they talk to the daughters of the Confederacy? Is it daughters of the Confederacy? No, it's no I thought it was going to be, but it says daughters, uh, of, the the Revo- 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 okay. be daughters oh, okay. of the American Revolution. I thought it was going to be daughters of the Confederacy. Um, but it was amazing to me, like, how absolutely like boring i find the conversation and i'm not saying boring like uh we don't need to talk about these i like the the side of it that talks about the the heritage side and it's because like you know i went through a few years of this in new orleans but about how their arguments are so dumb and such circular arguments and so vacuous like i can't even like listen to the argument anymore because i don't I don't understand the motivation for it, and it just goes around and around and around and around. And like, I don't, I don't think there's any convincing a person. I don't think there's any convincing them. Well, of the issue. I want to start off by saying Lee had a lot of good ideas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his best idea was surrendering. Yeah, his best, number one, <laughs> Great surrendering. Idea. It was a really um, good idea. He should have started. He should have led with that. One. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's just people. Do, I mean. They, their, their parents tell them, well, you know, it was like, it was very complicated and it wasn't really, it was about states' rights and, you know, it was like, Mima told me it was about states' rights and Lee was a pretty good dude and, you know. Right, so. but I mean, I grew up on that too, right? Yeah. And so it's like. Yeah, but then we read books. Well, like, we read books. Well, I, suppose, and... <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. That, I mean, I guess. But it's. I just, I, it's just the argument is so dumb, and it's like even if you're gonna advocate for that position, it just goes around like a, well, you see, this is my my heritage, uh, and it's like, well, I, you know, and how can I learn my heritage or live it if I don't have statues and theme parks or theme parks? Yeah, if I don't have a theme park, what do I learn <laughs> about my heritage? Um, you know, that's why we take Musashi to Samurai Land. <laughs> <laughs> like what? It doesn't even make any sense. And then, but you had a little bit of, and I kind of felt this a little bit, like what you brought up earlier, David, like about like the kind of hard-headedness of the people. Where the one lady correctly pointed out, no, my family fought for the union, but I think they should keep the Dixie Stampede because uh, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. All right. Um, uh, and. and that's the other thing. It's such a very American thing. It's such a it, where people are like going to get worked up about a medieval times theme park. Where it's like you know this is a Dolly Parton business venture to get tourists 
uh, in Pigeon Forge to come eat like whatever the meal sounded horrible, but whatever it was, like the a, a, four fried chickens and a coke. yeah, and, fried uh, chicken and coke, just like you had, uh, just like when you were uh, fighting for the the South and the Civil War. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you get soup, a coke, you get a coke, chicken you get and a pork cutlet, bottomless coke. Bottom and then afterwards, coke. you get coffee, but if you're on the southern side, you get chicory in it. Yeah, great. <laughs> uh, well, you know, my uh, a lot of my people object to um, Disneyland, the furries. I mean, when I <laughs> see my people <laughs> objectifying. Yeah, I mean, well, that's uh, goofy. Yeah, no, that's, that's appropriation of your culture. <laughs> yeah. Pluto, Pluto walking around with his butt hanging out like that. <laughs> Just act. Just asking to be you. <laughs> oh yeah, but it's just, just Pluto. Turn it down a notch, Pluto. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just I, I in my note I just put the things that they find important are very odd. Where it's just like I, you know, I I gotta have a Dixie Stampede. Why? Like, why do you care? It's a business, right? Um, and so yeah, I just get really bored with that conversation. Like, I mean, I'm definitely on one side of the conversation, right? But I get I get bored with it. Um, I'm with both uh, sides. Um, even the well, side yeah, that's my, right is boring. My my side of it can be uh, very boring as well. It's like I, I've been to I don't know how many protests in my life, but I never understand why people want to be the person that's going to go up and like um, like yell a slogan at somebody, right? It's like they don't they don't <laughs> care. You're not gonna. It doesn't matter. Like it's. Um, I don't know. Like, so, yeah, and it can be. Like, I, we, those people aren't going to be on the right side. I'm sorry. Um, and, yeah, I'm not going to go all out for Dolly Parton's business. Well, but I thought that... Go, oh, ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no. No, no, no my mind is moving. Okay. I thought that Dolly Parton's response was interesting uh, where she said, a lot of things I got wrong are out of pure ignorance, which is kind of like, I think, if you're going to move forward as a society, it's one of the best responses you can have, right? I thought it's a very good response. And it's probably also because she's a good business person. But, sorry, go ahead. I think that's really good. And also, it's very complicated, this whole, like, Dolly as a person and Dolly as a business person, Dolly as a mm -hmm. human and Dolly as a business person. And they were like, yeah, like, we are just going to change the name to Dolly Stampede because we were thinking about changing it anyway, so... Because we were right. gonna, so like, we, we can were, export it to Japan. Yeah, like, <laughs> right. so we were gonna, we were gonna open a Dolly Stampede in San Diego, and nobody cares about the Civil War in San Diego, so we were just gonna call right. it Dolly Stampede. So yeah, so we're just gonna go ahead and, so we're gonna do the right thing because it's good for business. Yeah. Right, it, but that's that's one of the strange like contradiction in America is like often so. In the larger structure, racism is good for business, right? But in the kind of consumer culture, racism can often be bad for business. And so you have business people making decisions because, like, these things might not be popular anymore. Right. But it kind of guides them in some ways towards making the right decision. I don't know. It gets very complicated. Yeah. But I, I will say, if you're a person out there who has some lingering, lingering, festering, uh, like, bad opinions of your past that like if, and you're looking to move on to say a lot of things I got wrong or out of pure ignorance is a pretty good way to kind of you know uh, move on from that point I think because it's true a lot of us do right um, yeah most everything uh, I did wrong was out of pure ignorance 
<laughs> the rest were out of spite and malice. Fifty-one forty-nine. Yeah, fifty-one forty-nine split. But spite and malice are good reasons too. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, we're kind of we're kind of towards the end of this, and maybe we're never going to get. We'll never the, get living to the with end. Dolly Parton piece because that's pretty involved too. But I. Well, let, let's finish up by going into that a little bit. So we read by um, by friend of a friend. Or is she is she a friend of yours too, Chad? Because she's a friend. She's a friend. Yeah, she's a friend. I would call her. A okay, friend. I'm sorry. What's her, her name? Is uh, Doctor Jesse Wilkerson. That's Doctor Jesse Wilkerson, who's at uh, uh, State. University of Mississippi. Univer- Oxford. Oh my goodness, University of Mississippi. Yeah, Mississippi, Mississippi. Oxford. University of Mississippi. Yeah, Southern Studies, and, and so. Uh, she wrote this piece called um, "Living with Dolly Parton," and I went and reread it today. And uh, a lot of it's really interesting to me. But it seemed to me like she she starts out with this thing that's a theme through all of this, and it's a theme through so much stuff that we've talked about uh, regarding Southern culture, which is that moving away seems to be the the complexities of moving away seem to be a really a really big theme. Yeah, I mean. I mean, and I think there's this whole, like, I mean, we talked about it maybe last time or the time before last about, Mm -hmm. you know, being from Appalachia. Like, when did I, you know, I don't remember being from Appalachia when I was growing up. I mean, I was from, so it's, but now, like, when you move away, like, you, you know, cherish a lot about what you left behind. But then also you you question a lot about what you left behind. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like we've talked about, like Dolly is a very complicated, like person. Well, I think um, uh, one of the ways that I first started to think of myself as Appalachian was after I moved away and ran into other people who were from the region, and we kind of hung out and talked together and. Um, Uh, It was almost a joke, but it wasn't quite a joke that we were from the same place, even though, like my friend Jared is from West Virginia, very different from East Tennessee, and from a coal mining community, which couldn't be much more different than where I'm from. Um, Mm. And um, so it was almost, and then I have another friend from Louisville, Kentucky, um, uh, who um, also sort of was part of the pack and uh, there were several of us who were together in New Orleans hanging out and um, uh, just sort of having experienced it and owning it in different ways Um, and then the whole kind of myth of southernness is exploded when you're in uh, uh, when you're from Appalachia and you're in New Orleans and the cultures seem to have pretty close to nothing in common right yeah, absolutely. Uh, sure. Um, and so there's, there's a lot more going on in this piece. I, I did like that she highlighted something that I'm very interested in being a, an urban studies and urban sociologist person about how there's this interplay between like the kind of development of Appalachia and the moving away of kind of the heavy industries manufacturing and then trying to replace that with like retail and tourism, but that the wages and the type of labor are just uh, dropped out. And, you know, Dolly Parton's a figure in this, and they kind of debate whether she's complicit in it or not. And what I would say is that it really doesn't... 
I don't know how much it matters, right? Like it doesn't matter. I think she's just in part of it, and she's um, there's nothing Dolly Parton can do to change the structure of the U.S. economy, right? And so she sees that people are poor where she's from. And, you know, the ideology of America is that the way you, you alleviate that is through, like, kind of charity and then also through uh, creating creating businesses, right? And so she did both of those things pretty effectively, right? And so there's no way for those two things to address um, systematically what's going on in Appalachia or the country at large. It's just the, the paradigm that, that we live in. And it's true that Dolly Parton hasn't done anything to overthrow that, but, like, is that her I don't know, like you know, is that really who she is? Is that really something you expect of her? Well, the thing to remember about her also is that she went into, she went from a very rural upbringing into the music business with the emphasis, Mm -hmm. both on music and business, I guess, in her case. But um, she's, um, she doesn't have some sort of uh, abstract theory in right. her educational um, uh, yeah. um, repertoire, you know, and she's not, she didn't right. study Marxism. She didn't, I mean, she, business was her Wait, way she out. Didn't? Music okay, was I'm her out. way I'm out. I'm not talking about her anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I had an, a little bit of an objection to the mm-hmm. article in a couple of places, but the important part I thought was, uh, there's a part where she quotes some coal miner as saying Loretta Lynn is pro-union and Dolly is anti-union. And mm. she quotes it in, and from the mouth of a coal miner to give it veracity. But then she goes on to say, I find no evidence whatsoever that Dolly has ever said anything against unions. And she points out that uh, Dollywood isn't unionized. But I don't know that Loretta Lynn's Ranch, which is another theme park that's in Nashville, I doubt very seriously that those employees are unionized. Um, so I, and, I reread that part because you, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I, I was going to uh, say is she finds this woman and she talks about how she worked at Dollywood for a long time doing part-time and seasonal work and stuff. And then she left the work and she didn't have anything like a retirement plan or anything. But there are people who work at the theme park who have 401ks. There's a free clinic for the people who work there. There's, it's not like there are no benefits and she kind of talked like that wasn't the case. And, um, it just depends on how you're employed and you get a lot of choice in how you're employed. We have a friend, Nathan, who's friend of the yeah. podcast who worked there every summer cause he was a teacher and, um, yeah. to make his, um, uh, uh, federal and unionized job, uh, work for him. He worked every summer at Dollywood. Uh, so that right. he could make enough money to get by. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, just on the first point, um, I reread it because I know you brought that up before about the the union guy, and I kind of I I think I read it a little differently as her kind of not signaling that out as an example of anything, other than that it was the first time she had encountered someone kind of be critical of Dolly Parton, who she'd grown up as with kind of as, as a hero or like at least a. Um, a figure that everyone kind of generally agreed on liking, right? Uh, and it was the first time she'd run into somebody kind of saying, no, I don't like her because of, of this, right? I don't think it was, um, I don't know if it was supposed to give us any broader evidence. Well, it kind of segues straight into talking about uh, Dolly's business practices. 
Right, because I think she says, uh, because, it, okay, so it made me think about this and transitions to it. And yeah. I, I think my, um, I'm just reading, I'm reading this as someone, you know, trying to work on a book about their research. Is like, it, it reads to me like it's a, it's a lot of scenes from research, right? It's no conclusive part. It's a lot of um, kind of vignettes from like maybe a right. larger, a larger work. And so um, I, there's no connection, you know, to a lot of yeah. things. And I actually, I ran some numbers. I ran some numbers. And uh, Uh-oh. I'll preface this by saying that it's very complicated. And we live in this very complicated system. And Dolly has done everything right. I mean, she made a lot of money. And she has done a lot of philanthropy. And she's given a lot back. And that's what we, you know, like when we are little, we tell, like, when you make it big, like, you give back to your community. And you enjoy your life. But... Dolly is worth so I don't know. Like Dolly's worth her net worth her worth her estimated worth is half a billion dollars. So she's worth five hundred million dollars. So and if you work at Dollywood, so if you work at Dollywood and you make I think the if you make nine dollars an hour, which is the starting wage at Dollywood, uh, it would take you if you worked eighty hours a week with overtime, like so making time and a half or over. So basically, you would be getting paid for a hundred hours a week. It would take you ten thousand, uh, ten over ten thousand years, ten thousand six hundred eighty-three years to make half a million dollars, half a billion dollars. So let's say you made a raise. So let's say you got a raise every year. Let's say you got a five percent raise, which is very good. Which I work in a unionized federal, you know, and state funded job, and I have never gotten a five percent raise and i i've like the closest i've ever come is like a three percent raise like working as a teacher uh unionized teacher so if you make a five percent raise every year it would take you 264 years to make half a billion dollars working at dollywood so are we working from the assumption that everybody should have as much money as dolly or that they should be able to make that much money by well i was just i was just under log flume I was just saying, like, people that work at, like, your average employee at Dollywood, how long it would take them to make half a billion dollars. Right. And so, yeah, I have in my notes, like, I just wrote that it's a trap because, like, uh, you know, it's the, it's the position Dolly's in in the economy, right? Like, if you're right. in that position where you are uh, in control of all of this stuff, your wealth is going to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. Right. And if you are a person who is a laborer in it, yours is not, right? That's, the, that's how it works, right? Um, and if, if the question is, what is Dolly Parton doing to, like, to tear this down? Well, I, yeah. probably nothing, you know, probably nothing. But it doesn't mean that she's not within the ideology that, that she grew up in and experienced doing what are told to be the right things. Right. right. To create to create jobs and to do philanthropy, right? right? Um, and so I think creating jobs and doing, of course, from my standpoint, that is um, just maintaining the system, but I mean, criticize the system. You know? Right, and I wanna say that she's not the sole owner of Dollywood. She does not own right. Dollywood, the, and uh, there are other partners in Dollywood, you know, and I would say like, you know, if she went in, you know, if she woke up tomorrow and decided we're gonna pay everybody $50 an hour to work at Dollywood, I don't know, like how the, and then you have to balance that with all the, you know, she has the, uh, what do you call it? The, the library, the, is it? Imagination the, Library. Ima- Imagination Library. She's, you know, sending books out to every kid that's born in Tennessee. Uh, when the Gat, when the fires, like when the fires in Gatlinburg, uh, you know, she gave everybody in Sevier County 
that were affected by the fire. She gave him like a thousand dollars a month for like, you know, six or seven months, like, you know, until they got right. back on their feet. And so, yeah, so the, it, it's a, yeah, I mean, she's yeah. kind of positioned across like the gaps in the system, right? It's like, there's no, right. Yeah. Right. So well, it's like, no, I want to say I'm not really, I mean, I'm, I think I'm pretty obviously not a, a hardcore capitalist by any means, mm -hmm. but Dolly Parton didn't make her money by owning Dollywood and she didn't make her money by uh, working retail at a theme park. She made her money in the arts, which is very hard to do. And she mm -hmm. did it by investing in herself and in other things, uh, by diversifying what she was doing and one thing and another. It's not like she just, um, um, it's not like she, they're ill-gotten gains any more than, I would say much less than most gains in a capitalist society. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it just seems like that's kind of a problem I have with the academic approach that uh, Avonrod had and that I saw in the article that you have to work at taking somebody down a notch in order to be engaging with them. It has to be um, uh, finding something really bad to say about Dolly Parton. And it's not that there's, that it's not okay to say bad things about whoever. Um, it just seems, sometimes it seems a little strained to try to, uh, and again, we're mixing up the business called Dolly Parton with the personal moral person called Dolly Parton. Uh -huh. uh, but I don't think um, that um, um, within the, the, our culture as it exists, that it is immoral to be wealthy or to not be um, uh, outrageously more generous than other people within the same market are um, uh, when you're offering employment to people. Uh, and I think that she is a lot more generous. She employs uh, handicapped people. She employs all different sorts of people who would otherwise be seen as largely unemployable at Dollywood. Um, what... I think that that coincides well with the, the last of the last thing in the article, and maybe we can wrap up on that. But uh, she says, but her true genius is how she has created multiple personas at once so that her fans can choose one that slips easily into their own stories and desires. And I think that doesn't just apply to her fans. It can apply to like any analysis of her. So we're, we're analyzing the, the kind of the colonization and extraction industries of Appalachia through and focusing that through Dolly Parton, right? So she's such kind of a broad and wide uh, and well-known popular character that you can use her as the lens to analyze all this stuff, whether that's fair to her, the person or not. Yeah. Fair I enough. Mean, yeah. And it's very common. Well, I don't know, maybe to go up on hold and, you know, like growing up, going to pitch. I mean, thinking about going to pitch and forge in 1985, as opposed to going to pitch and forge in 2000, five or whenever the last time I went to Pitch and Forge. I mean it's greatly you know, that whole area has been super developed and and um Yeah. And I don't know. And she's been part of would that, you... but I don't know, would in in that same position I don't know, would I have done the same thing in her Right position? I don't know. 
One of well, these I think days, I'd up like us to have um, five hundred million dollars. I would, that. yeah, I'd like <laughs> so that we can start our own theme park. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my god, Tommy Land. Yeah. Um, also, I think uh, an we should talk about the whole phenomenon of gentrification and carpet bagging and all of that because um, certainly my hometown, nobody's moved into it. Uh, nobody's going to anytime soon. But Knoxville, uh, it's happened to a certain degree. And uh, uh, Wes, your your culture has basically been strip mined. It's gone, but it's gone, baby. <laughs> it's gone. Uh, it's gone. And I, I think, mean, for real, um, it's gone. A lot of Appalachian culture has been too, but in a, a sort of a less acute way than um, uh, the the Florida coast. Um, but I think that's all interesting stuff to talk about outside of the context of. Uh, and don't worry, in in twenty years it'll all be under under underwater anyway. <laughs> that's the hope. But I looked at the maps and it might not be. I'm a little worried now. Oh, you, are you saying Appalachia might not be underwater in twenty years? <laughs> well, <laughs> rainwater. If they open up the the Pineville Dam, <laughs> Pineville floodgates. Down to the Pineville floodgates. John Prine's live album. <laughs> All right, I think we've come uh, full circle then. Yes, let's wrap up our Dolly Parton <laughs> trilogy. See you next time. Yeah. See you next time. Bye, I will always love you. <laughs> <laughs>